and I made it to my home place. I found triumph of the will, where once lay a shining city, stood a fortress on a Hi, I'm Henry, and this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us today. For those new to the show, Kagan, Danny, and myself are three leftist combat veterans who take the military and veteran stories of the day and provide some much-needed historical context and examination. Mary Hillis, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Hi, thanks for having me. Would you start us off, please? Give us uh, the 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 Reader's Digest version of your time in the military. Oh man! Um, well, I joined the military uh, in two thousand nine, and I got out in two thousand eighteen. Just to give people an idea of how long I did. Uh, and I joined as a linguist, and I did my entire time as a linguist. Um, so that included, you know, graduating from boot camp and then going to about a year long, uh, school to learn my language. I chose Farsi, um, to learn. And then from there, um, I went to Georgia, Fort Gordon in Georgia. Um, and at Fort Gordon, my first set of orders was a deploying set of orders, direct support is what it's called. So. Um, as linguists, we don't spend all of our time on a ship because there's not always the job for us on the ship. So they, they just send us to ships that need us when they're deployed. So basically from Georgia, I was sent TAD to Bahrain. Um, and I did three deployments like that. Bahrain would augment me to ships that were there in the Persian Gulf. And I would serve as a linguist on board those ships as long as they needed me. And then they transfer me to another ship usually. Um, my deployments ranged from six to nine months. And um, so, my, yeah, my first about three and a half years were that. And then after that, I took shore duty orders, um, which involved working at Fort Gordon still. Um, but I was stationed permanently at Fort Gordon instead of going overseas. And I worked in a capacity um, that was directly for the NSA as a Navy um, linguist. And then um, my last year or so, I actually... Uh, gave up my clearance to the top secret building um, for reasons that we can get into later. And uh, I ended up working in the, uh, solely as, as like the person that ran the fitness for the command and um, introducing new people to the command. So that's what I did for like the last year and a half of my Navy career before I got out. Nice. Okay. What uh? What made you want to join the military in the first place? Well, um, I wasn't going anywhere fast with my life. <laughs> Let's just put it like that. And um, as a teenager and a young uh, adult, I made some really questionable decisions and people that I hung out with and friends and stuff. And um, <clears throat> basically, I was just kind of looking at my life one day, and I'm like. I'm working three dead-end jobs to pay rent in a tiny little 
I, I basically lived in a closet that was like downstairs of this house um, in Pismo Beach. I didn't have any windows or anything, you know, but I was paying like $800 a month to live there and I was working three jobs that didn't have any type of future in them, you know, nor did I have interest in them really. And so I just, my dad had been in the Navy for four years. And so I kind of was like, let me look into the military. And I actually wanted to join the Air Force with my initial um, choice. Um, I'm glad I didn't now, but at the time it kind of sucked because I, I went to them and I took the ASVAB and I scored very high on the ASVAB. Um, and the Navy, I actually took the ASVAB with the Navy because the Navy recruiter was the one that was at the office. They like all like had like a little shared office type thing. So, you know, you could like right. see it. Um, and the Navy recruiter is the one that actually gave me the ASVAB, but I was like, I want to check with the Air Force before I go Navy, you know? Um, and so I had my ASVAB score when I saw the Air Force and because I had been arrested for shoplifting when I was 18, technically adult, um, I had my record still because it was I hadn't had enough time to have an expunged and um, the the Air Force was like oh yeah no you can be a mechanic <laughs> and I'm like, like I'm far too smart for that I'm not doing that shit you know so um, so I went to the Navy and the Navy was like here's all the things you know like take whatever so they obviously tried to get me to go nuke first but I knew I didn't want to do all the math so I, <laughs> <laughs> I actually had been really interested in linguistics as a study, as like a scientific study in high school. I had actually like done my senior thesis paper, if you want to call it that, um, in high school on linguistics. So I was like, ooh, a linguist. Like I thought that I was going to be doing stuff that civilian linguists do, which is like, uh, you know, they learn different, old, usually like ancient languages, and then they look at skulls to decide how those people spoke, you know, like really old, old artifacts. So I kind of thought it was something like that. And obviously <laughs> that's not what Navy linguist is. Um, but I was always like down with learning a foreign language. I had learned Spanish in high school, so I figured it wouldn't be that hard for me. And so that's why I actually chose linguist. Also, you know, the bonus was nice. So <laughs> yeah, you guys got a pretty nice bonus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> throwing $12,000 in me at that age. I was just like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Did, um, what made you choose Farsi? I, I always thought that you guys, like this, the language that you picked was based on the score, like your, your scoring at the language test. So it is, it is. But you have like a range of languages um, that you can choose from that they right. need, you know. And I happen to have, you know, like Arabic, Farsi, um, Spanish, uh, French, German, Russian, like had those languages as a choice. And um, so actually at my boot camp, they had a that was a linguist and he was like in charge of helping people select their language, you know? And so they, I just asked him, I was like, which one would be the best? Like for future, like making money, you know, like job wise, which one would be the best? And he was like, what? And so I was like, all right, come on the first. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, yeah. Very cool. Once, uh, once you got done with Monterey, uh, what, um, how did you feel when you came to the command? At Georgia? Yeah. Well, I've always been like a really like this um, optimistic kind of person, you know? So I never like 
I was never like a, I never had any issues with the command in Georgia until later down the line in my first deployment and everything, you know. Um, when I first got there, I mean, obviously it was hot as balls, but I'm from the desert in Southern Cali, so kind of used to the heat, you know. Um, <laughs> I got there in July, so it was like middle of just miserableness in Georgia. Uh, the one thing I noticed, like, because <laughs> I drove across the country with my mom to get there, you know, and like, I remember this one, um, this is more about like Georgia in general, not the command, but it's really funny. Um, we like merged onto the freeway that goes to Fort Gordon. I don't remember the name of it now, but, um, and there was a, an ambulance and he had his lights on and his sirens, right? But he was going like 50 miles an hour down the freaking freeway. And we were just like, okay, so everything's slow over here, you know, like <laughs> this is how they do things. Uh, so honestly, um, the command, I mean, it was fine and everything when I first checked in, I think it was just more of a culture shock of the East Coast and the South, you know, to me than anything. Yeah, no, I definitely, I, I agree with you. Like, even though I had lived in the Southeast before being in Georgia, it was definitely a different experience, like being in that town and being in like a, just being in the Bible Belt and like yeah. being in the military and you're in this weird place because it's like, it, it's like metropolitan for like the South sort of, but then it's also yeah. like a military town. So it was just like a really weird mix of things. Yeah, but then they also don't serve alcohol on Sundays and afternoon, you know, you're just like, where am I? You know, I don't yeah, know. Exactly. <laughs> Did you get to do any on the ground time in the Middle East during your deployments? No, I um, was on ships all of my deployments. Yeah, I was in Bahrain, but you can't really call that on the ground time. So. <laughs> when, uh, in as much as you can say, what do you feel like your deployments were? Like, how did you, did you like the routine of them? Did you like that there was a little variety compared to like what uh, most people in the Navy do on deployment? Well, I guess it just depends on your perspective, but I felt like I had far more variety because yeah. I ships like every three months. So, I mean, while it came with negative things like people not knowing you, no one having your back, et cetera, et cetera, you know, um, at the same time, if I had a terrible ship, like it was only three months or so and I was gone, you know? <laughs> so, um, that was cool. Um, I also feel like I stepped far outside of the linguist, the typical linguist like zone and really tried to make myself part of the ship on every ship I was on, even after I got me lost, because I found that that gave me the best quality of life. You know, people liked me if I did that. So um, I think I had quite a bit of variety because uh, I was like, you know, participating in the firefighting drills and I was participating in the active shooter stuff and I did the ropes, you know, when we pulled in and um, I tried to like, I, I learned engineering really well because it was really interesting to me. Uh, so I had like a lot of other things that I was able to do besides just sit in the space and do linguist things. <laughs> um, right, also, right. I was like uh, super fortunate, I think, in that most of the ships that I was on had at least one time where they needed me to come up um, and help the captain make a decision on something. Um, mm. So I got to like go outside of the space and really like, you know, uh, showcase like 
what the value that we actually have on board and all that kind of stuff to people that mattered, you know? Yeah. So that I really, I loved deploying, honestly. I didn't start disliking being a linguist until I worked for the NSA. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's, I think, I think you have a really, I really liked your attitude. I really like the fact that you, you know, a lot of people give writers, like the people that do direct support, they give them a lot of shit because they say, you know, that same thing of, oh, you're just in the space, you're not doing the work like you're not doing the rest of the ship stuff that the rest of us have to do. So right. that was really cool that you were willing to like, no, I want to step up and like be a part of the ship, even if I'm only here for a couple months. Yeah. I That's feel like people awesome. like give you what you give them. That's usually how it works. Now I will say like, I did have some terrible experiences. I don't know if you remember my first deployment, but I was pulled back early and masted for some bullshit, you know? Right. So, like there were ships that were just hopeless. And no matter how hard you tried to be a kind person and work with them, they didn't want you, you know? Um, and that was absolutely miserable. And I think for like really junior linguists, especially ones that, that don't have their um, pins because you know, that matters out there. Um, yeah. It's very hard to like find how to deal with that kind of thing when you're out there because you're usually alone. So there is that there is that side of where the, the ship just is absolutely terrible. Um, I'm not gonna. I don't. I definitely don't want people listening to think like, oh well, it's all the linguist's fault because it's not always all the linguist's fault, you know. But you definitely right, right. can like make your life a lot better out there for sure. <laughs> um, so kind of segueing into that, like what being a female in the military. I mean, I feel like in our community it was definitely a higher percentage than in a lot of other parts of the military. Uh -huh. So, uh, but even that, I mean, even if there is a little, there's like a few more females, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're going to be treated, uh, that th there's still going to be the issue of like hyper-masculinity and having to deal with like all the crap that gets thrown in your face. So yeah. would you mind uh, expounding on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a really broad topic, um, especially <laughs> like just the difference in culture between being on a ship and then being like working back in the shore with mainly linguists and CTs, you know, very, very different culture. Um, I experienced both the, you know, side on the ship of harassment style, very aggressive style stuff. And then um, back in Georgia where most of the CTs were, it was more you know, the men didn't want to listen to me even when I was at E6 and I was running my mission, you know. Um, I definitely, like when I worked for the NSA and cyber, um, the everyone that was in charge of me was a man, uh, a white man specifically. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the level of uh, not, they, they didn't take me seriously a lot of times, you know, they didn't want to listen to what I had to say. I got talked over a lot. It's, you know, frustrating for sure. I experienced that a lot. Um, there was also other E6s, you know, uh, within the first class mess, um, a first class association uh, that were typical just, just mansplainers, you know, and you have to deal with that too because they think all their ideas are golden and they aren't there to listen to yours. <laughs> so I, I think that's definitely a problem. I mean, it's a problem in the well too. It, but I, I'm glad that we're highlighting it for sure. Do you feel like, um, cause I mean, Henry and I have talked about this before 
when we had a when after Invisible War came out, and we had started talking about, oh, we need to start addressing the sexual harassment thing, mm. and we had done that little anonymous survey where everyone got to say whatever they wanted to say about their experiences. And then mm -hmm. we all got into different groups of like 30 to 40 people. Mm -hmm. And the, the captain, the XO and the command master chief were all in each of the, the meetings. And I mean, it was hard cause that was like a couple months before I got out. So I was kind of looking at it from this, like, Oh, Hey, you know, we're trying to address this and we're trying yeah. to show that like, we, we want to have that nuanced conversation about what is actually going on instead of just doing the normal, you know, PowerPoint about sexual assault and what the yeah. uh, survivor advocates can do for you and blah, blah, blah. Right, right. It was more, more interactive and human. Do you feel like that helped at all, the command? I think it's a really good step in the right direction. The struggle with this kind of stuff from my perspective is that there's not one fix for it because um, on both sides, victims deal differently and then um, predators also prey differently. You know, there's not like a, there's not like a one, one, one fix, one big thing that we can do that, that fixes it. Right. So I think it's a really good step in the right direction to actually be listening to the people that are experiencing these things. Um, but I don't know that it would solve the problem in itself. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like that was a good first step to say, hey, let's have a frank conversation about what's actually going on. But then yep. the next step, trying to make like... Like what do you do? But, yeah, exactly. Like to implement new steps of holding people accountable and helping change a culture which uh, is very much ingrained in the way the military runs. Well, <sighs> and you have like the problem that the people who ultimately could change this culture are often a huge reason that it exists because exactly. the people in charge are from the generation, you know, that that was normal. So getting them to recognize that is very difficult, understandably, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I think that as more of our generation come into that older generation era and they come into these positions of, of power and everything and, and decision-making, um, we will see a greater shift towards the side that we need um, less of, of the hyper-masculinity happening, I think. Would you I be think willing to talk about your experiences? Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, let's see. Well, I was lucky enough to not really have much harassment happen uh, at my home command in Georgia. I do know people that had issues. Um, I only had issues with one individual who happened to be one of my supervisors. Um, and he was very... Uh, very very flaunted that that he was in charge and that i was a, a woman and i was not smart enough to do anything that he could do um he would come and like sit on my desk it was when i worked uh, the watch floor in in georgia um he would come sit on my desk and like his crotch would be like right in my face you know and it was just like <laughs> yes like so ridiculous 
I ended up reporting him and we were never allowed to work together again. Um, he was a piece of shit, honestly. <laughs> but, um, you went through the whole reporting process and everything? Oh, no, I did not. I was very junior E5. I reported him to my chain of command who did not recommend that I report him at that time. And I honestly didn't know anything about it because that was before we started doing the regular PowerPoints all the time about it. Um, so in addition, it was also definitely not assault. And assault is what's normally recommended to be reported like that. You know, right. harassment in itself is not like, it's not protected under the um, UCMJ, you know? So it's not like a, and it's not an illegal thing. It's not even an illegal thing out in the civilian world to harass. Yeah. It's just like, obviously you want to be comfortable in your workplace. So I reported it to my chief and my chief handled it at the time. who was a really good chief. Um, but yeah, and I, it wasn't just me. There was like four other girls that I can think of that reported him along with me to our chief. So yeah, that was my experience in Georgia. And then uh, on the ships, like, wow, wow, wow. Uh, I definitely experienced both assault and, and harassment on ships. Now, before people hear assault and think like there's actually like rape going on and stuff, that's not my assault experience. Um, right. Not that it doesn't happen, but assault can also be, assault is basically defined as unwanted touching of any part of the body that would normally be covered by a bikini, a two-piece swimsuit. So, you know, any of the private areas. Um, so, um, yeah, I actually, the one that's like really sticks out to me that was just like left a really like nasty taste in my mouth was um, on one of the cruisers that I was on, there was this other E5 that I was on watch with. And, you know, like on small ships, there's very limited amount of people in the space at a time. So it was just me and him usually in the space. And the first like two weeks I was there, like every time I sat down, he would put his hand in my chair and grab my ass. And you know how uncomfortable that is? Like, I had just got there. I'm brand new, right? Nobody else sees this happening. How do I address this? You know what I mean? Right. Like, I was a brand new E5 on top of that. So, and it was my second deployment. I had just come back from that mask. So, I don't want to cause any problems, you know? Like, right. I just don't do my job. Leave me alone, please. So, I was really timid. I was in a really uh, bad space as far as like self confidence and everything goes because they had shattered it with the whole mask thing, you know? Um, so I was just going for like two weeks before I finally had the guts to be like, if you don't stop grabbing my ass, I'm going to report you, you know? And he stopped, but it, but yeah, he got away with it for two weeks. <gasps> Craziness. Like what makes people think that they have the right to do that? I just don't know. You know, it's crazy, but um, other experiences would be mostly like stalking. I had a lot of that, you know. Um, there would always be like one guy that would just like follow me out to like wherever I was on the ship at all times. Just really uncomfortable. You just want to be able to do your thing, you know. Um, yeah. A lot of times I would have like a guy friend in Cess that I would you know, we'd be cool or whatever, and I would tell him about it, and then he'd go threaten this other guy, and then they'd leave me alone, you know. Um, but of note as well, like, harassment 
uh, is a problem that see, and it doesn't always just come in sexual form, and it doesn't always just come from the opposite gender. Um, right. I was, I think, the most significant harassment that I had was by an, uh, well, two female LPOs that I had to work under, um, and not sexual, like just making my life miserable because they could, you know, because they didn't like that I was there and people liked me. Huh. So that side too, being, I think being a female, like particularly you really deal with that with other women, like jealousy and hatred. And cause you know, you like get on board the ship and they're like four months or whatever into their deployment and you're a new female. And if you're anywhere close to attractive, Everyone's talking about you. Everyone wants to hang out with you, blah, 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 all the guys, you know? And so other females see you as a really big threat often. It's kind of like a jail mentality. <laughs> 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 it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So I, uh, that was honestly like what made my life the hardest out there, is that kind of stuff. Yeah. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone whom you think might be affected by it. Maybe a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name. Advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military can create for minorities and also inflicts on minorities across the globe and anyone else you think it might affect. Please take a minute and share this with them. Now our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First there's Patreon where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and other crap I can't think of right now. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arends. Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash fortress on a hill or please check out our store on spreadshirt the great bill Kropinski did an awesome job designing our first shirt which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash fortress on a hill check for promo codes before you order and now let's get back to the podcast Yeah, sometimes the, uh, the the females can be just just a bigger part of the hypermasculinity, the mm -hmm. toxic part of it, 
as as men can, you know, depending yeah, on who they are and and if they see that they have to enforce something like that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, we can't point fingers at just one side for sure. <clears throat> Um, when you, what, I didn't know that you, uh, had stopped working at the at NSA. I thought I didn't realize you had like given up your clearance and went yeah. to work for the CFL. So yeah. the command fitness leader. <laughs> so yeah. what, uh, would you mind explaining that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously I can't go into a lot of detail, right. but you know, my morals and ethics have, and and like political views and moral views and everything have changed drastically since the time I joined the Navy and the time mm -hmm. I got out of the Navy. And um, you just see things that make you realize, you know, like the world is a lot more complicated than what I think it is. <laughs> um, and, and so I kind of like my last deployment, I think this is really where it started blooming for me as far as my change went. Um, my last deployment, I was um, on the cruiser that was next to the uh, carrier, right? And the carrier was launching. We were like out in the Gulf of Oman, and they were launching strikes um, on Afghanistan at that time. And so, you know, a bunch of fighters take off with missiles and whatever, bombs and stuff, and then they come back empty, right? And I just mm -hmm. happened to be out there one night when they were coming back. And it just hit me like how many families were destroyed that day, you know? And I'm like directly enabling this stuff because we work for the NSA and the NSA is what enables that kind of stuff too, you know? And so I just kind of like realized like, I don't know, I just have too much humanity. I had too much um, sympathy and empathy for other people. I just didn't feel like it was right for me to be part of that at that time, you know, obviously I had to, and I had already reenlisted. So <laughs> I went back to the store, but I still had this, like, you know, I don't know if this is something I want to do for a long time feeling. And I went back to shore and I started working directly for the NSA in cyber capacity. And I was the mission lead for my particular cyber mission. So I had like, I think it was like 12 people that were, taking orders from me, you know? And so I would have to like take orders from NSA civilian guys and then pass down to my guys. And I was trying to be the voice of reason in between those, you know, like the mediator, like, okay, was this necessary for us to do? Because uh, cyber is very invasive, you know, cyber intelligence is very invasive. And as a linguist, like you kind of like get really in the weeds with stuff. So, um, progressively, you know, I just started to realize that these people weren't listening to me at all. Um, they would have me have my guys do things that weren't necessarily in our target set just because they were curious about it or whatever, you know. Um, granted, we had a mission that we were trying to break out. And so you kind of have to, like, put a bunch of fingers out there and see what comes back type thing, you know. And right. so I just, this is what I told them when I, when I basically was like, look, I don't want to work in this building anymore. I have moral and ethical problems with this. I was like, I was having trouble sleeping and stuff, you know, and it gotten to that point. So I was like, 
I told them like, cause they, they initially wanted me to sign the thing saying I had an issue with war, whatever that is, a conscientious objector type thing, you know? Right. And I was like, no, I don't because I think war is just an unfortunate necessity of humankind. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I know that like with war, there comes collateral. It's unavoidable. And the more that we get into like the cyber realm and everything, the collateral changes. You know, we don't see dead bodies anymore, but there's other things that are happening behind the scenes and people that are losing their privacy and stuff for us to be safer, basically, you know? And that's the justification, right? For the mission. Right. Which, but, you know, I'm not in the position to make that decision whether it's actually happening or not because I don't. I don't even know enough about this stuff to say that it's not not keeping us safer. You know what I mean? I'm glad I'm not the person that's making those decisions. But all I knew was that it was eating away at me and I couldn't do it, you know? So there's the kind of person who can do it, who, you know, has that, like, I guess, like extreme patriotism and can look beyond the things that America has done wrong, <laughs> you know, and be <laughs> what i'm going to support my country anyways but it wasn't me and so i just that's why i decided like i can't do another year and a half of this it's it's like gonna make me go crazy you know yeah well that's really nice of them that they made that decision that they were just able to like okay we're gonna work with you and you know move you to another part of the uh, command well i mean it wasn't like the co was very helpful let's just be clear um, <laughs> nsa themselves because I worked for the NSA, so they're the ones, the, the uh, what was her name? But you know the lady, the SSO there? She, yeah. She was great. She was like, you know what? You know, we don't want people who have issues being forced to do this. Like, we don't want that. Because that's how you end up with security breaches, and you know? And so, like, mm -hmm. no. Like, we're not going to make you do something that you don't want to do. She's like, but I just, you know, I have to pull your clearance, basically. Like I have to cancel your clearance and I can do that. She said she could do that for like, um, I think it was 90 days. And then she had to have the CO request it. And for the CO to request it, uh, I had to have some kind of reason why I couldn't be in working in my capacity as a linguist because he was very strict on people are going to do the job that they're trained for. The particular right. CO was. So I ended up having to fail my DLPT oh. so that, he didn't have that's the language test that every linguist yeah, has to take that says to maintain their language yeah. right so i had to go and fail it so lose money because <laughs> i was getting paid about 300 dollars a month from my scores um right. failed it so that he couldn't put me back in the building uh and reinstate my clearance and not only did he you know ask for my clearance canceled and everything but then he sent me off whenever I separated, you know, we get like a little end of end of Navy evaluation that says like how good of a sailor you were or whatever, you know? Right. And he gave me subpar marks on my professional knowledge. He gave me a two on my professional knowledge and an MP on my separation eval because I had failed my DLPT. Oh. Yeah. So there was definitely some sacrifice that had to be made on my part. Um, because <laughs> he was just not very uh not very very friendly to mental health <laughs> let's just put it that way he did not care well kudos to you for for standing up for yourself and for 
the you know the, your your own conscience. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's sometimes following your conscience is a painful painful trail, but yeah. at the end of the day, you want to be able to sleep sleep at night. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, what would I like tell someone that I care about to do? You know, absolutely follow what your heart's telling you to do. I don't think that anyone should ever do something just for money. And that was what it came down to for me. No, that's, <laughs> that's funny. Like, wow. Yeah. I mean, your, your thought process was the same as mine, you know, just working my entire time working NSA side and Navy side. So, you know, I had that same issue of just really like getting to a day where it was like, it would just wear on me over and over again, what we were doing and be like, I can't, I, I don't want to be a part of this. And like, look, I mean, yeah, I, it was easy for me because I, you know, I'd finished my time and I was like, I'm just going to ride it out until my contract's over. But yeah. like, since you had just reenlisted, like that would be a very uh, different process. Yeah. I still had like two years. Fortunately, I got pregnant with my son, like right around the same time. I actually like got out of the building and I was like five months pregnant and that, Ooh, let's talk about that because that was, <laughs> An example, I think, of the whole um, issue that we have with men, too. Um, mm. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I had been having significant stress from this before I was pregnant, but then obviously being pregnant and everything, I don't know, a lot of your thought process changes when you realize like you have somebody that's going to depend on you and your decisions, too, you know? Um, and so I was just, like, realizing, like, this is not what I want to do. This isn't anything that I want to tell my son I did, like, period, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So when I was five months pregnant, this is when I started all of this, and then they took me out, and I went to the chaplain, because they, they told me to go to the chaplain first, right? So I go, <laughs> of course. oh, why? Why are we? They, they thought it was, like, a mental problem, right? And so I went to the chaplain, and I explained to him all this stuff, and he was, like, literally, literally like, well, you're in a very emotional state right now, so I think we should just tell them that you're pregnant and you can't handle it. Ugh. <laughs> and I was, you got to be kidding me. And let me tell you, this guy, this chaplain, in his office, he had this, like, 1950s-type drawing of, like, a very busty chick, you know, Ugh. on, like, taped to, like, one of his um, drawers, and, like, a file drawer, and then underneath of it, it said something about like my something about his wife's tits, hmm. and like, and the chaplain. This is the fucking chaplain. Yeah, yeah. Like wow. talk about toxic masculinity. Like I'm like sitting here like, I'm, why am I talking to this guy about this? You know, he's not gonna hear me. Uh, so yeah. And so, that was the only guy that we had for the entire command to talk yeah. to about issues. You know, yeah, as you have a command of 1,300 people and only one dude to talk to. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and then they told me, like, well, you can go see the Air Force chaplain. And I'm like, but the Air Force chaplain is going to understand my problems because these are Navy problems, you know? I don't know. Right. It was, like, really, like, yeah, kind of crazy how limited the resources were. But then I started seeing, well, actually, I had been seeing already because I, for just pregnancy reasons, like, um, and, and relationship reasons, I had already been seeing the counselors that are available through Fleet and Family Services. Mm -hmm. And they were fantastic. I mean, the, the girl that I saw was absolutely amazing. Um, and she walked me through this whole thing, too. I, you know, I started seeing her for this, too. And, um, yeah, she's definitely, like, the reason I was able to make, like, sound decisions 
in the right way that didn't burn bridges, you know. So thank goodness for her. I'm and then you got help. Too, my chief at the time was like awesome. Um, he had my back 100%. So, you know, he, the, the department level, they had meetings about it and stuff. And, and he was like the only leadership in those meetings that was like, I don't care what you guys need as a mission. Her mental health is more important to me. You know, like we That's will find awesome. So, yeah. Shout out Chief Biggs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how leaders should be, you know, out yeah. in front taking care of people. Yeah, and there were really there were some really good ones, so I definitely time. Yeah, I feel like we had some really good leadership at that command, and I, I like like I mean it was a mixed bag. There were some that weren't, but there was a lot that were really good. Yeah. Um, uh, I now I now that you've been out for a little while. Um, how are you? I mean, I know you've had some time to reflect on it. And like, I feel like that's the point where we learn a lot is once we're done with it, because when we're in it, you know, we have to have a certain mindset about it. But then when we get out, it's a lot easier to reflect on it and be a little more like um, uh, objective. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like about, I just hit the year mark um, in June. And I feel like around that time, I was I started to be able to be a lot more objective about it. Uh, before that, I kind of feel like I was like really jaded, you know, like even like talking about Farsi or hearing Farsi, I'm like I'm not even interested, you know. <laughs> um, but now um, I can I think I can look back and be like, you know, honestly, I'm really thankful for all of the experiences that I have in the military because they have made me a better person all around. They, they've made me more empathetic, you know? Um, I'm a better leader because of a lot of the negative experiences because I can like look at people and not, not judge them just based off of one thing or whatever, you know? I, Cause I know like personally, you know, we go through these ups and downs. Um, I'm glad that I got to do what I did. I mean, who gets to like Hilo from ship to ship, you know? I mean, that's super cool. I miss Hilo rides so much. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to serve in that capacity. Um, you know, while I don't agree with a lot of the things that our country does um, on the political, in the political realm uh, and foreign affairs and everything now, um, at the time, you know, I felt that what I was doing was right with my knowledge at the time. And, um, you know, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I acted on that, you know, as a person. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's all around a great experience for me. What, uh, what have you been doing since then? Um, I, um, Started school at uh, University of Hawaii um, about two months after I got out, and I um, initially went on a dietetics track to become a doctor of nutrition because that's what a lot of my other experience and certifications are in, you know, fitness arena. Um, but uh, I, she was just like not enthusiastic about it and 
you know, I spent 10 years of my life doing something that made money and I, you know, I was okay. And I just don't want to spend more of my life doing that. <laughs> you know, I want to like love what I do. I don't want to spend the majority of my life waiting for my job to be over. So I switched to marine biology because uh, I love animals and I, I love the ocean. Um, and I really want to work as like a conservation in a, in a, a con conservation type job um, for marine animals, marine mammals specifically. So sounds yeah, awesome. Going to school. Um, before we let you go here, I, uh, just just a curiosity um, with what has been happening towards Iran recently. Mm. I was wondering what your assessment of a potential for us going and fighting with Iran is? Uh, you know, I, obviously I have not been up on that, them and their military prowess in like, like almost four years now. So I don't know what their current capabilities are. Right. Um, however, I did read an interesting article in the Navy times that talked about, a lot of things um, and their potential to do damage to our fleet there, you know. Um, I think that Iran has a very like specific geographic advantage and that's the only reason that they could do anything. If they use the straits appropriately and they could trap a lot of our ships inside of the Gulf, um, mm. which could potentially be like sitting ducks in that aspect. However, I mean, one sub or several planes could take out the majority of their their weapon systems on the shore line, you know? Yeah, um, there's service to air missiles sites, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then also, I mean, just there, uh, from what I saw whenever I was um, working that mission as just their ability to perform isn't consistent. So I don't know. I think, I think they might get a, a couple of lucky stuff, you know, maybe a couple ships, but I very seriously doubt that they would be able to do much damage over the span of maybe like a week or two, you know, how much, uh, how, because it doesn't, I don't really think that the Iranian, it doesn't seem like the Iranian people like are very much behind this. Yeah. So I think there would be a lot of backlash like politically for the leadership to actually fight uh, because most of the population is so young and they want like, they want, you know, the things that the West has. And uh -huh. it's, so I feel like there's, there's like a big clash coming like internally more than externally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there has been cl a clash. I don't know if you remember when they were having all those big revolts. Um, yeah. Like in, I think it was like 2015 or something, right? Maybe even earlier than that. Yeah, there's been a couple, like in 2009 yeah. and then again in 2015. Yeah. So um, there definitely is an unsatisfied faction, large faction of the population there. But I feel like if they had the power to do anything, they would have done it already, you know? Um, I don't know that that uh, conflict with the West would distract or weaken 
the government there enough to enable that um, section of the, the population to be able to like overthrow or, or do anything really of serious damage, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Like, it's kind of interesting to think about like the reason that we're here right now is because we meddled with their government, like, you know, <laughs> 40, 50 years ago. And that's why we're in this position now, you know, exactly. but on to fix it might be to just go and overthrow <laughs> overthrow the current regime and then let them put someone else in place you know i don't know didn't work last time maybe it'll work this time you know <laughs> <laughs> kagan did you have anything else you wanted to wanted to <sighs> ask that was no i thank you so much for your time mary and i appreciate you being as open and uh um, forthcoming as you have been yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, thank you for listening to my rambles. <laughs> no, I, I, thank you, Mary. It's been it, it, it's been really nice uh, having you here and sharing sharing what you shared with us. And uh, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you so much for coming. Sure thing. Y'all have a good day. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor never forget it we'll see you next time you good people and listen to my song i hope you'll pay attention i will not detain